0: The abortion drug mythopristone will stay legal nationwide, at least until tomorrow, as the Supreme Court weighs its next move. It's Thursday, April 20th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, how the White House is gearing up for the 2024 political fight over abortion rights. Also, some of the political donations that stopped after the January 6th insurrection have started back up plus the global political game that's being played when it comes to getting supplies for electric vehicles. And this hour, figuring out how to help people help the Earth after death with so-called green burials. We realized
1: that if we wanted to offer this as an option for people, that was the first biggest obstacle was that it was against the law. (laughs) Bruins lose
0: Sunny in the 60s today. It's 7:01 Now the news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Two people have been killed in Oklahoma after tornadoes stormed through yesterday. Multiple tornadoes left severe destruction in the central part of the state. Store manager Becca Inman was working a shift at a Papa John's pizzeria. She put everybody into the restaurant's freezer for safety.
3: I hustled everybody into the walk-in, and then there was like... A lot of commotion. People were starting to get a little frantic, and I was like, it's okay, calm down. There's three feet of concrete. We're good. This is the safest place to be on the block.
2: The National Weather Service warns more bad weather is on the way for the Central Plains. Severe thunderstorms today could drop hailstones that are three inches wide or larger from Kansas into Iowa. Senate Democrats are pressuring Republican lawmakers in the House to pass a measure to raise the debt ceiling, but with no strings attached. NBR's Windsor Johnston reports lawmakers have
4: deadlocked on the issue for months. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer singled out Republicans who have supported legislation in the past to raise the borrowing limit without conditions.
5: Even Donald Trump understood that what
6: House Republicans today do not The full faith and credit of the United States must never be taken hostage."
4: House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on Wednesday unveiled a plan to raise the borrowing limit for one year in exchange for a series of cuts to federal assistance programs, including much of President Biden's signature climate and social services package. But Democrats have repeatedly refused to pass a debt ceiling bill that's tied to cuts in government spending. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington.
2: Police in Akron, Ohio, broke up a peaceful protest last night with tear gas and pepper spray. The protesters were calling for justice after a special grand jury decided not to indict eight Akron police officers who were involved in the shooting death of a black man last summer. IdeaStream Public Media's Abigail Botar reports.
7: About 150 protesters marched through residential Akron calling for justice for Jalen Walker. The 25-year-old was shot and killed by Akron police last summer and a grand jury this week decided not to indict the officers involved in his death. The peaceful protest was in its second hour when police descended on the scene. (laughs) Akron and Summit County officers used pepper spray and tear gas on protesters and media standing on the sidewalk. The city claims the police acted in response to plastic water bottles being thrown at officers, but footage suggests snow bottles were thrown until after the pepper spray was used. For NPR News, I'm Abigail Botar.
2: A white Kansas City, Missouri man has pleaded not guilty to felony charges of shooting a black teenager in the head last week. Andrew Lester has been freed on bond. He is accused of shooting teenager Ralph Yarl, who had knocked on his door by mistake. You're listening to NPR.
0: From WBR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The Secretary of Defense says age has nothing to do with the leak of classified information allegedly carried out by a Massachusetts Air National Guardsman. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira is charged with releasing that military information on the Internet. A judge yesterday ordered him held in custody for at least two more weeks. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin says most of the U.S. military is young, so Teixeira's age is not the issue.
8: The issue is, uh, you know, how uh, you uh, responsibly uh, execute or carry out your duties and how you protect the information. Uh, You know, all of us have have a requirement to do that, and supervisors have a requirement to make sure that that's being done.
0: Massachusetts lawmakers say they support a full investigation into intelligence operations at that base. They were briefed yesterday on the leaks. Senator Elizabeth Warren tells the Boston Globe she agrees with the decision to stop intelligence operations at the base for now. She says it's important to reassure the country that there are no ongoing problems. Two Massachusetts lawmakers are leading an effort to end qualified immunity for police officers. That's a policy that, in many cases, prevents officers from being sued individually for their actions on the job. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and Senator Ed Markey are filing bills that would end that protection for law enforcement. Presley believes the effort is not a radical one.
2: In any other job in America... There are standards of conduct and consequences for failing to meet them. Doctors can be sued for malpractice. Lawyers can be sued for negligence. And policing should be no
4: exception.
0: She adds that ending qualified immunity will provide justice to victims of police brutality who never get their day in court. Local, state, and federal investigators are looking for whoever set a fire at a church in Cambridge on Easter Sunday. WBUR's Dave Fanef spoke with the pastor of the Faith Lutheran Church, who calls the arson disturbing, but says there are reasons for hope.
6: Pastor Robin Lute-Johan says the community has rallied for the church. He says he's grateful for the support and love the church has been getting and the way neighboring houses of worship have responded.
9: We were taken in graciously by Pentecostal Tabernacle on Columbia Street. They have offered one of their buildings to us to use in the mornings for worship, which is amazing. The mosque took us in for prayers last week that we were able to pray and then share a meal with them. And the synagogue around the corner, Temple Beth Shalom, has hosted our free meal.
6: Luke Johan says he's thankful for the generosity, kindness and grace. He says he'll be offering updates to his congregation with a newsletter this week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Fanef.
0: It's
10: 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum, with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about?
0: Plan your visit today. The Bruins lost to the Florida Panthers 6-3 to last night at the Garden. Their playoff series is now tied at one game each. Game three will be tomorrow. The Red Sox lost to the Minnesota Twins last night 10-4. to Sunny today with a high in the 60s, partly cloudy overnight. It'll be in the 40s, mostly sunny tomorrow in the upper 50s. Cloudy but dry on Saturday. It's 42 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your Thursday morning with WBUR.
11: WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side-by-side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C.
13: NMA Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Thousands are trying to flee the fighting of Sudan's capital of Khartoum. For six days, a conflict has raged between the rival forces of Army General Abdel Fattah Burhan and the leader of Sudan's paramilitary forces, Mohammed Hamdan Daglo. Civilians have been caught in these two men's struggle for power. Homes, businesses and hospitals have all been targets. Dr. Mohammed Isa is a physician at Allegheny Center in Pittsburgh. He also serves as secretary general for the Sudanese American Physicians Association, aiding in recovery efforts. He's in Khartoum, where he says 39 out of 59 hospitals have been shut down and some have been targets of fire and airstrikes. Uh, Dr. Uh, Issa, there have been repeated attempts at a ceasefire to allow doctors and aid workers to assist those in needs. Can you tell us about the situation you're in right now?
14: Uh, thanks for having me. Um, unfortunately, the clashes between the Sudanese Army Forces, SAF, and the Rapid Support Forces, RSF, continue on the streets of Khartoum. Despite the agreed-upon 24-hour ceasefire that was started yesterday at 6 o'clock in the evening, we continue to hear the sounds of heavy machinery and air fire strikes during the early morning of today as well, and just about half an hour ago. So the situation continued to be um, dire and continues to be guarded, unfortunately.
13: Doctor, so, so what do you do? I mean, obviously you can't trust the ceasefire, so how do you try and help?
14: um we have we have been trying to help at uh, multiple levels and angles here our immediate need and our immediate concern is the healthcare situation as you mentioned earlier there's a lot of hospitals that are out of service and s- several of them have been attacked and bombarded so we continue our ask and our appeal for an immediate secure of um, safe passage to the healthcare facilities safe passage. To the healthcare personnel to get to this hospital so that they can uh, treat the injured. Uh, today, we had a meeting with the preliminary committee of the Sudanese uh, doctor trade unions about establishing sort of a peripheral um, spots so or peripheral primary care centers that we can provide services to those patients, to those injured, away from the areas of the clashing. So, uh, decentralizing the care, if you will, so that. Um, injured can get to that uh, a little bit easier than the areas where the clashes are happening.
13: What about supplies? What kind of supplies do you need?
14: We need everything. It started from just simple, normal saline, simple gauze, simple sutures, all the way to the supplies that are used in the operator room for labrotomies, for extraction of gun wounds, chest tubes for those who sustain chest traumas, all kinds of supplies. We are in dire need for blood and the bags that are used for blood transfusion because th- those are in short as well. So everything that we can get our hands on, it's definitely in a critical need right now.
13: If you don't get a ceasefire, at least one that you can reasonably trust, what are you gonna do? What are, what are the people that you're there with are gonna do? Are you just gonna just try and help as many people as possible?
14: absolutely absolutely and and now i think the idea of sort of using the primary health care centers the primary health care centers here are historically based within the neighborhoods so they are much more safer they are away from the main streets and it's easy for the medical personnel to access them because most of the time the medical personnel working in those primary health. Care centers are actually living in the same neighborhood. That's how it's been historically in Sudan. So this idea now is taking a lot of attention, so that we can establish these as a trauma centers, with to be equipped with maybe a simple operation um, operating rooms, so that patients and the injured can get to easily. So that that would be our blam um, p blam b yeah. if the ceasefire has not really been responded to.
13: Doctor, just about 30 seconds. What are the people that live there? What are they saying about what's going on, about everything?
14: Unfortunately, what they're saying is this is a war that only the innocents and the people of Sudan are the ones that are affected from it. They all appeal for an immediate ceasefire. They all appeal for an immediate attention to the medical part of this, as they can see by themselves There is a human rights crisis happening uh, day by day in Sudan, unfortunately.
13: Dr. Mohamed Issa is the secretary general for the Sudanese American Physicians
12: Association. Doctor, thanks.
14: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
12: The Supreme Court has extended a temporary freeze in the abortion pill case until Friday at midnight.
13: At stake is access to an FDA-approved medication used in abortions and to help manage miscarriages. The White House says it is prepared to fight regardless
12: of the outcome. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid has been looking into the White House strategy on defending mifepristone. And she's with us now to tell us more. Good morning, Asma. Good morning. So abortion access, for the moment, seems to be largely in the hands of the courts or the states. So what's the White House trying to do?
15: Michelle, the administration can't do a whole lot, it seems, on the policy front. It can fight this in the courts. That's what it's been doing. That's what it's going to continue to do. And I interviewed the White House Chief of Staff, Jeff Zients, yesterday. He also made it clear that the administration is going to continue to use the power of the bully
6: pulpit. Vice President Harris is leading the charge for our administration with urgency and determination. Uh, We've been clear, she's been clear, we're prepared for any outcome, and we're going to continue to fight, and the court needs to do the right thing here.
12: How is the White House doing that? How is it trying to draw focus to the issue?
15: Well, the vice president has been traveling around the country. She's been meeting with local lawmakers, activists, students, health care providers. Her staff tells me she's been to 18 states so far. And, you know, she talks about, I will say, a woman's body, a woman's choice with a degree, I think, of, of authenticity, activists tell me, that Biden cannot necessarily do. Um, you know, for example, the other day she was out on the streets of L.A. rallying the crowd at a women's march. And then she went on to Reno, Nevada, where she was applauding efforts to enshrine abortion rights into that state's constitution. But she was also criticizing Republicans for efforts nationwide to try to restrict
12: abortion.
16: We have to have a counter movement to what they're attempting to do, which is to create a national ban on the right to make these decisions.
12: So, Asma, you've told us what the vice president is doing. What's the president doing? Well, you know, to be clear here,
15: whatever the administration is doing is essentially the president's agenda, but he's not as visible on the issue. Some Democrats say that Biden is not as comfortable speaking about abortion. You know, he has expressed reservations in the past because of his Catholic faith. And I want to be clear here that his position has certainly evolved. Uh, Democrats say the debate has shifted so far to the right with six-week bans and this medication abortion case that it's easier for people to pick a side. Uh, I was speaking the other day with Linnea Erickson. She's with this centrist Democratic group called Third Way, and she had this sharp analysis of what exactly Biden's job is.
3: I think that his role is to help frame just how extreme the Republican
17: policies are. He is much more comfortable talking about the kind of edges of
18: this debate and where it has moved.
15: Biden's main role has been to set the direction of his administration, you know, make it clear that reproductive rights are a priority. He's also called on Congress to pass a law that would restore Roe versus Wade. But he's not out there rallying the troops. You know, he's framing abortion more broadly as a threat to democracy in the context of how extreme Republicans have become and also raising alarms about politics interfering in medical decisions made, you know, for example, by the FDA.
12: Let's talk for a minute about the politics. It would seem that this would be a huge focus as we head into next year's presidential elections. I'm just thinking even just about the role that it played in more recent state or midterm elections.
15: No doubt. And I will say so far, Michelle, reproductive rights seem to be a winning political issue for Democrats. You've seen that in recent elections, and you've
12: seen that in polls. That is NPR's Asma Khalid. Asma, thank you. My pleasure. Wildland firefighters are pressuring Congress and the White House to make good on last year's promise to permanently boost their pay and benefits. The infrastructure law gave federal wildland firefighters a temporary $20,000 pay bump. That bump is set to run out in a few months. NPR's Kirk Sigler has this report. Last year's bonus was a lifeline for wildland firefighters like Justin Brown.
8: He's heading into his 14th year fighting fire on the Lassen National Forest in Northern California.
0: It was just enough to where you know folks that were living in their cars could afford to get into an apartment with a couple of buddies and actually live
3: like a human being.
8: The bump in pay runs out by October, which typically is the peak of California's fire season. But climate change and suppression of natural fires has made it more year-round. And Brown says this is causing even more strain on an already stressed and overworked federal firefighting force.
0: We've been running off of promises for years, what we consider, you know, dangling the carrot um,
19: in
8: front of us and we've been kind of pushing along out of a pride for the job. Brown spoke at a news conference in front of the U.S. Capitol on a windy morning yesterday as lawmakers began debating President Biden's federal lands budget. It includes hundreds of millions of dollars for pay bumps and housing and mental health services. Some firefighters start out making about 15 bucks an hour and most rely on overtime and hazard pay to get by. Here's California Congresswoman Katie Porter.
15: It should not be a huge surprise that this labor force is understaffed when workers can make more as
20: new employees at Costco than they can parachuting into forest fires.
8: boosting wildland firefighter pay has had some bipartisan support, though there were no Republicans at yesterday's union-organized press event. Firefighters like Justin Brown feel caught in the middle of a political budget battle over the debt ceiling. Far-right Republicans are pushing for deep spending cuts. But Brown warns of a mass exodus of the workforce as early as this summer.
0: I mean, it's going to be a natural disaster. You're going to have huge fires going on everywhere and nobody that has the experience to try and put them out quickly.
8: Towns will burn, Brown says, and more people may lose their lives. Kirk Ziegler, NPR News.
12: This is NPR News.
0: This is ninety point nine WBUR. Good morning, I'm Rupa Chinoy. Coming up in four minutes on Morning Edition, we learn about how Philadelphia schools are trying to prevent gun violence by taking new steps like escorting students home. It's 719.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com and Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com.
7: Listeners come to WBUR for insightful, fair, and balanced information. And this is just what we strive to offer our clients as they endeavor to understand the complexities of the real estate market.
21: Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, a WBUR business partner.
7: We really believe when people have good information, they can make great decisions. Because of this, we feel so aligned
0: with the mission of WBUR.
21: For more information, email partnerships at WBUR.org.
0: Clear skies and a high of 65 today. Some clouds move in tonight as temperatures fall to a low around 42. Tomorrow we end the week with a mostly sunny day and a high near 58. Right now it's 42 degrees in Boston at 720.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the University at Buffalo, where researchers are developing new technology for people to take control of their health, like an earbud-based system that can detect common ear ailments, buffalo.edu NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Charles Schwab, with a variety of financial planning options, from online tools to meeting with a financial consultant. Schwab works to make it easy to plan for tomorrow, today. More at schwab.com plan.
12: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. In Philadelphia last year,
13: 217 children were shot. And to put that into perspective, that's more cases than in New York City, which has more than five times Philly's population. W-H-Y-Y Sammy Kayola looks at the school district of Philadelphia's effort to keep students safe when school lets out.
23: When the school day ends at West Philadelphia High School, Malik Smith puts on his blue vest with one goal, disperse the crowd.
4: Kids is all together now. they moving in a, in, a, in a larger pack. They're excited that school is over. And if there's any tension, that's usually when it's going to take place.
23: At the start of this school year, the school district of Philadelphia rolled out the Safe Path program. It puts trained adults like Smith on the perimeters of six high schools to try to break up fights and keep an eye out for potential danger in the surrounding streets.
4: After school, we want them to just travel home safely, get to and from safely. That's our whole goal. So if somebody needs to be walked to the bus, if uh, someone needs us to be walked to the car, you know. Whatever it is, we try to take care of this in our parameters.
23: SafePath is modeled after a similar program in Chicago, serving elementary, middle, and high schools. Their version has reduced violent crime in the areas around those schools by 14% since it started in 2012. That's according to an analysis of Chicago Police Department data. In Philadelphia, the district hasn't released numbers on whether there have been fewer shootings around SafePath schools since the pilot began. But they're expanding it to 12 more schools, including Dobbins Technical High School. It's in North Philadelphia, one of the city's gun violence hotspots where cracked sidewalks connect vacant lots, boarded-up homes, and corner liquor stores. 17-year-old Tajay Ellis is a student at Dobbins. He and his friend, Sincere Thornton, are both part of an after-school media program.
2: Welcome, welcome,
19: sit, and then you'll do apologies and then introductions, in that that order. Wait, are there more of you?
23: They've been working on a film about what it's like to grow up around gun violence. I live so
14: close to it that it can just affect me at any time. Like, I can can just be walking down the street and get caught up in in it, and that's just something that you kind of have to think about a lot.
23: Tajay says he doesn't feel safe in his neighborhood or at school. His friend, Sincere, says he tries to stay out of the fights that happen between students. He doesn't know what they're about.
4: To be honest
8: honest, It is 100% random. We have no idea because mostly we don't
24: know. We don't know the people. We don't know what it's about. And in my opinion, it's better if I don't find out.
23: Tajay says it usually starts with an argument. Social media can make it worse. And with guns being so available, it can easily become fatal.
14: Like, there's a chance you might die outside of school just because you fought someone.
23: He says gun violence goes deeper than just arguments. Students are struggling with poverty and hunger. They're frustrated with the government and the COVID-19 pandemic, and they don't feel heard. I
14: think it's definitely worth looking past just like, oh, this kid has a gun, you know, let's do something about it. And thinking about why does this kid have a gun? Why, Why would someone so young resort to something like this is the big question.
23: Dozens of students walked out of Dobbins in December to protest what they described as unsafe conditions inside and outside the school, like people who don't attend Dobbins entering the building and a lack of security guards. Eric Rosa is assistant director of restorative programs and services with the school district. He says SafePath is designed as a response to those issues.
5: You know, we're looking to reduce the rate of violence experienced by our students. We're looking to increase their feelings of safety and security.
23: It's not just a matter of increasing security. Rosa says SafePath monitors and some school staff get special training on how to talk to students about violent behavior.
5: They can learn foundations and mentoring. They can learn different techniques in mediation and conflict resolution.
23: It's something that Malik Smith, the Safe Path Monitor at West Philadelphia High School, takes seriously.
4: It's our job to provide them with that. They might not get that at home. They might not get that in the community that they live in.
23: On a recent afternoon, he asked a group of kids about their dreams. They were snacking on bags of chips while they talked.
24: Well, my dream, I want to become a baseball
1: player. Because I'm playing since second grade. My dream is to be a dermatologist. If that don't work out, I'm going to be a, um, what's
7: called?
4: A hairstylist. Um, my dream is I want to be a nurse because
18: um, I like to help people
23: out. They think they have a chance at achieving those dreams. If they can lay low and avoid the threats that surround them every day. Smith wants to see it happen.
25: No one can stop you from getting an A. No one can stop
14: you
4: from... You know, making your practices, for the most part, and, and giving your all on the field. So if you do those things, I believe each and every one of our children will go to the next level.
23: He's part of a nonprofit focused on Black youth that's helping the district get monitors like him in place. They'll need to find dozens more adults to supplement the new expansion. For NPR News, I'm Sammy Kayola in Philadelphia.
13: WHYY's Aubrey Yuhas contributed to this story.
12: In California, Los Angeles County has a new tool that's helping trap junk before it flows into the Pacific Ocean.
5: This is our Trash Interceptor 007. It's a fully automated, solar-powered trash solution.
13: Kurjan Lee is with LA County Public Works. He shows off the interceptor as it sits at the mouth of Bayona Creek. It's in the middle of a floating barrier that catches trash riding the creek toward the ocean. A conveyor belt lifts the trash on board the interceptor, collecting it into
5: six large bins. And then those bins eject out on a barge and uh, sent to a materials recovery facility that separates the trash, and then the recyclables go to beneficial reuse.
12: Lee says the Interceptor was a gift from the Dutch nonprofit, The Ocean Cleanup, and it's the first system of its kind used in North America. The initial goal was to catch 30 tons of trash.
5: We're now at 60 tons, about 120,000 pounds altogether. So by any measure, that's a really successful amount of trash recovered from uh, the, the channel and prevented it from going onto the beaches and into the ocean.
13: But Lee says the Interceptor can't catch
5: everything that's floating out there. The type of pollutants that get by, unfortunately, are like pet waste, fertilizer, pesticides, those things that dissolve in
12: water. The Interceptor is part of a two-year pilot project to determine if the new technology is successful in capturing trash from major coastal cities around the globe.
0: This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, we look at the link between corporate donations to Republican attorneys general and the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. It's 729. A quick reminder that the WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the WBUR app in your app store today. We're
11: funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo, what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham, ZooNewEngland.org. And ThoughtForms Custom Builders, building healthy, high-performance homes for families and for the future. Supporting Riverside Community Care, helping make a difference in the community by delivering innovative and compassionate behavioral health care and human services. More at RiversideCC.org and ThoughtForms-Corp.com.
6: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Damage assessments are getting underway this morning in central Oklahoma, where tornadoes tore apart homes and businesses and knocked down trees and power lines. At least two deaths are reported in the town of Cole. It's about 30 miles south of Oklahoma City. State police trooper Eric Foster says the damage in Cole is widespread.
8: There's a lot of infrastructure damage. There were some power lines, significant power lines, that were down in that area blocking state highways as well.
6: The severe storms also moved through parts of Kansas and Iowa. The National Weather Service says more severe weather is possible today. Final preparations are underway along the Gulf Coast of Texas for this morning's scheduled test flight of SpaceX's nearly 400-foot Starship rocket. Gage DeVila with Texas Public Radio says a launch attempt earlier this week was scrubbed because of a stuck valve.
21: Valve on Starship froze within minutes of SpaceX pressurizing its engines on Monday. Cameron County officials expect thousands to show up at Isla Blanca Park on South Padre Island to view the launch.
6: The test flight is scheduled to last one and a half hours. NASA hopes the Starship rocket will help get astronauts back to the moon maybe as early as 2025. There was one winning ticket in last night's nearly $253 million Powerball jackpot. It was sold in Ohio. This is NPR News.
0: From WBR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Federal regulators are ordering the T to address the issues behind several close calls where employees were almost struck by trains. At least five of those incidents happened in the past five weeks. The Federal Transit Administration sent a letter to the MBTA this week outlining several steps it must take. That includes expanding a training program for workers. In Brockton, the percentage of students who speak a language other than English at home has nearly doubled in 20 years. To forge deeper connections with parents, the district is boosting translation services. WBUR's Carrie Young has more.
1: The district has 17 bilingual community relations facilitators and parent advocates. They began working out of a central office this school year to be more accessible to parents. Brockton Superintendent Michael Thomas says the staff offer more than just language assistance over school matters. They also help connect families to resources like affordable housing and food assistance.
8: The better we can help support parents and the better they are doing, the more equipped they are to help their child. And they benefit from better grades, enrolling in higher level classes, uh, going on to a college or career.
1: Combined, the interpretation staff speak a total of 10 languages. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young.
0: The president of South Korea will be in the Boston area next week. Yoon Suk-yeol plans to speak at Harvard on Friday. He'll also visit local businesses to learn more about the biotech sector. It's 733.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Muzzin Audio, offering high-fidelity FM Bluetooth audio speakers in an array of nostalgic designs and colors, available at
0: muzzinaudio.com. The Bruins' first-round playoff series is now all tied up. They lost Game 2 to the Florida Panthers last night 6-3. Three. Game 3 will be tomorrow in South Florida. The Red Sox lost to the Minnesota Twins 10-4 to four last night at Fenway. The teams will play again this afternoon. Sunny with temperatures rising. Rising to the mid sixties today. Tonight, those fall to the low forties and it gets a bit cloudy. Tomorrow, mostly sunny Friday with highs in the upper fifties. Right now, it's forty two degrees in Boston at seven thirty four. This is WBUR.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Uma. A cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com/npr. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com/npr
13: this is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm mean, Martinez in Culver City, California.
12: And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. After the attack on the Capitol in January of 2021, Republican states' attorneys general saw an exodus of corporate cash from their campaign organization. The AGs had associated themselves with the Stop the Steal movement that sought to overturn the 2020 presidential election, and many big companies wanted nothing to do with it. Two years later, though, those same Republican AGs are bringing and corporate cash again but have not changed their positions. That's according to a new story out today from ProPublica. The reporter Ilya Merritt is with us now to tell us more. Good morning, Ilya. Good morning. So at this point, it's an almost common position for Republicans to talk about fraud in elections. So why did it stand out when Republican attorneys general specifically took a position?
19: AGs are incredibly powerful players in our democracy. A well-crafted legal motion from an attorney general can result in a nationwide injunction, or it could set a new precedent. In the past year, Republican AGs have been very active on issues people care about, abortion, the border, student loan forgiveness, and they have oversight over election law and voting.
12: Let me just ask you to go back to the beginning and just you know, remind us, what was the attorney general's role in the Stop to Steal movement? How did they get involved?
19: Yeah, so after Donald Trump lost the 2020 election, his campaign filed dozens of legal challenges to the vote, and almost all of them were dismissed. But then in December of that year, a challenge came in from the Republican Attorney General of Texas. He filed an emergency motion with the Supreme Court asking them to actually invalidate the vote in four states that went for Biden. And 17 other Republican AGs joined him in a motion. That motion was rejected. Then a few weeks later, just before the big Trump rally, a nonprofit linked to the Republican AGs called the Rule of Law Defense Fund blasted out this robocall, basically telling people to get to DC.
12: So what happened when all this came to light?
19: Basically companies deserted the Republican Attorneys General Association or Raga donations fell off a cliff some donors like the University of Phoenix even demanded their money back it was an exodus
12: but then the, these companies that said that they wanted to support democracy that that is why they were withdrawing their campaign contributions or not giving them and then affirmed the result of the election according to your reporting they started coming back how did that happen
19: we got a glimpse of it from a briefing document prepared by Raga for its then chairman, the AG of South Carolina, Alan Wilson. He had a meeting scheduled with two lobbyists from UPS in the summer of 2021, and the prep doc. Uh, basically lays it out. It says, please remind them that their memberships lapsed in February and ask that they renew this quarter. And then it lists a bunch of UPS's policy concerns, uh, like labor issues. Now, ethicists say it is concerning when a business meets directly with a prosecutor about political fundraising, but it may be these businesses feel they need to have good relationships with AGs. UPS told us we support elected officials in both parties.
12: So you're telling us that big business has come back to support the attorneys general, but you report this group, these Republican attorneys general as a group have not really changed their position on that or not moderated. Tell us more about that.
19: That's right. Raga said uh, there's no place for violence in our politics, and they support protecting the Constitution. But, you know, one example, after the FBI search of Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate, many Republican AGs signed a legal brief in support of Trump, describing it as a ransacking, and they poured money into candidates who denied uh, the validity of elections, and some of them won.
12: That is Ilya Meretz. He reports on democracy for ProPublica, and he also covers Trump legal matters for NPR. Ilya, thank you so much.
19: You're very welcome. Thank you.
13: The Biden administration has an ambitious plan to make the U.S. a leader in electric vehicles and the batteries that power them. The goal is to ensure EVs make up more than 60 percent of new car sales by 2032. Key to the success is securing the needed minerals and other materials. And as NPR's Jackie Northam reports, the U.S. is coming late to the EV race.
24: The geopolitical race to dominate the lithium-ion battery is on. So far, China is far ahead of the pack. Andy Miller is with Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. He says those batteries can represent energy security for nations, much like oil.
3: If you want to move to solar, to wind, to any types of, type of renewables, you need a way to store it. Um, and the battery is the central component of that.
24: China is the OPEC of batteries, says Steve Levine, the author of The Powerhouse. He says Beijing has long been strategic about acquiring the critical minerals needed to make them.
6: So that's meant making deals and buying lithium mines in South America, buying and contracting for cobalt in Democratic Republic of Congo, for lithium in Australia, nickel in Indonesia. They've put together a map that brings all of the stuff to them.
24: Levine says China also dominates the refining of the raw minerals. The U.S., which considers China a strategic competitor, is lagging behind. But there are moves to change that. The Inflation Reduction Act is filled with tax incentives to boost the electric vehicle industry. But automakers need to show that 40% of the battery minerals come from the U.S. or its free trade partners.
5: It's going to have to go out and frankly find new friends.
24: Colin Hendricks, a commodity specialist at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, says the U.S. may need to look elsewhere for lithium and the like.
5: Countries with which it can kind of craft deals to make sure that it has access to the raw materials and in some cases the processed materials that are going to be necessary for feeding into this huge increase in uh, domestic battery production capacity.
24: Cullen says the U.S. has several large lithium deposits, including in Wyoming and Utah. But the permitting process to open new mines is lengthy compared to China. He says even in Western countries like Canada and Australia, the permitting process would take two or three years.
5: In the United States, that process could take up to a decade. And that's sort of the most optimistic kind of way of looking at it.
24: And in the meantime... Other countries are getting in the game. South Korea, Japan, even Sweden. A mega battery factory called Northvolt opened in northern Sweden in 2017. It was seen as a homegrown enterprise to help give the country energy independence. Anders Thor is Northvolt's communications director.
26: We are the
19: first uh, homegrown producer uh, of of batteries in in Europe and and the first mass producer of of, of batteries. When I joined three and a half years ago, uh, we had uh, almost nothing. And now now it's a factory producing batteries with 1,700 people.
24: Thor says Northvolt is expanding rapidly through Scandinavia. There are plans for Europe and the U.S. He says the Inflation Reduction Act has created enormous interest among Northvolt's customers, and it may open its own battery production plant in the U.S. in the near future, which means the U.S. is still in the race when it comes to electric vehicles and lithium-ion batteries. I'm Jackie Northam, NPR News.
13: This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Janoi in Boston. Coming up in just a few minutes at 745, traditional burials can be harmful to the environment. We visit a cemetery in Vermont that's trying to avoid those impacts. Mid-60s today under sunny skies, low 40s tonight, and it grows a bit overcast. Then on Friday, mostly sunny and upper 50s. It's 42 degrees in Boston at 742.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by InuWindow, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues, InuWindo Natick, and InuWindow.com.
0: The Healy Administration and the Massachusetts Life Sciences Center are expanding a program that supports entrepreneurs from diverse backgrounds. It's called Mass Next Gen. WBUR's The and Wameka reports the program gives funding and mentorship to people from underrepresented groups.
4: The initiative started in 2018 to support women in life sciences. The program will now also focus on people of color, the LGBTQ community, and people with disabilities. Governor Maura Healey says inclusion is critical, so Massachusetts remains a global leader in life sciences.
16: We know that we get better policies, laws, and importantly, better outcomes when more people are at the table and represented in any endeavor, including in the life sciences and its leadership.
4: Mass NextGen plans to partner with companies to provide 10 entrepreneurs $100,000, plus year-round professional development and networking opportunities. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zanin Jor and Wameka.
0: It's 744.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And The Huntington with Joy and Pandemic, a new play by Taylor Mack, directed by Loretta Greco, opens April 21st at the Calderwood BCA, HuntingtonTheatre.org.
0: This is WBMR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoy. Dozens of cemeteries across New England have started offering natural burials, meaning they don't use things like embalming fluids. And interest is growing as more people consider the environmental benefits. Lexi Krop visited a cemetery in Montpelier, Vermont, where workers are trying to keep up with demand.
17: At the entrance of Greenmount Cemetery is a white stone building. Inside, it's cool year-round.
9: So we have, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six bottles.
17: It was built in the early 1900s to store the dead. It still gets some use, but not like it once did.
8: When I started 35 years ago, we used to almost fill it. But the cremation rate has gone way up.
17: Patrick Healy is the director of the cemetery here and president of the Vermont Cemetery Association. He says the bodies in the storage vault have all been embalmed. Most will be buried in a casket inside a big concrete vault. For the past few years, though, there's been a section in the cemetery where none of that happens. It's up a hill at the edge of a forest. Healy drove up there on an overcast day in early spring with his dog, Lulu.
8: We decided to create an orchard on this hillside.
17: There's no monuments here or a manicured lawn. The graves are shallower than a conventional burial. On top of one, daffodils are just beginning to poke up. Another is covered in hay from a burial this winter.
8: And it was probably 10 below that night. So we covered it up with hay so that the ground never really freezes. So you can start the decomposition process.
17: Letting the dead decompose puts nutrients back in the soil, it doesn't have the chemicals or concrete used in most conventional burials, or require the energy needed for cremations. People have been buried this way forever. It's the custom in Jewish and Muslim burials. But the process is new for lots of cemeteries in the U.S. Healy says he now gets a couple emails a week from people around the state asking how to bring natural burials to their towns. And he's not alone.
19: Marshfield just opened one, and Woodbury just opened one, and so did Hardwick.
17: Joe Mangan takes care of at least five cemeteries that now offer natural burials. This is a huge change from just a couple years ago. In 2015, only five cemeteries in all of New England offered natural burials. Now there's well over 70 in the region. But it's taken some effort. We realized that if we wanted to offer this as an option for people, that was the first biggest obstacle was that
4: it was against the law.
17: Jennifer Whitman used to be on the Cemetery Commission in the town of Callis, Vermont. Before 2017, Vermont law required all burials to be six feet deep, and many individual cemeteries had bylaws requiring concrete vaults. Some still do, like in Burlington. Many of these rules are holdovers from over a century ago, when grave robbing was a big problem. There's more modern factors at play, too, like lawnmowers. Cement vaults keep the ground from settling, which is harder to mow.
27: The more and more we heard that, we like, so the, the
17: ethic that's coming first is the lawnmower, not the human's belief in how they want to be buried. Whitman led the effort to change this law in Vermont. She says initially there was a lot of pushback, including from Patrick Healy at Greenmount. Here's how he describes himself at the time.
8: I was the biggest opponent at the statehouse.
17: He had all these practical concerns, like animals digging up graves, the smell from bodies, or whether the dead would actually decompose in the soil here. He says none of that ended up being an issue
7: it just feels more personal, like you can say goodbye to that person. You know that they're going to still be a part of the Earth. They're not
17: separate from the Earth. Janice Walrefin attended the first natural burial at a cemetery in Vermont in 2019. She remembers her friend's body wrapped in fabric and lowered into the Earth friends and family filled in the grave with dirt and lots of flowers. In the months after, she planted a pollinator garden on top of the grave. When she tends the ground there now, she still feels connected to her friend, whose body is becoming part of that piece of earth. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Lexi Krupp.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in just a few minutes, scientists expect more tornadoes because of climate change, and there are concerns that alert systems might not be able to keep up. It's 749. Mornings
13: are dark this time of year, and the news can feel that way, too. Morning edition from NPR News helps keep you informed, not overwhelmed. Listen for a brighter start to your day.
0: Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by
10: you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. In Yemen, a stampede at a Ramadan charity event has left at least 78 people dead and more than 70 others injured. The Supreme Court has pushed its decision on mifepristone to tomorrow, meaning the abortion medication will temporarily remain accessible. And federal regulators are telling the MBTA to increase safety measures after several close calls where trains nearly hit construction workers. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org.
11: WBUR supporters include Weston Nurseries, Welcoming gardening season with a wide selection of trees, shrubs, perennials, and gardening products. Hopkinton, Chelmsford, and Hingham, WestonNurseries.com.
0: A great spring day today. It'll be sunny with temperatures in the mid-60s. Tonight, low 40s and some clouds move in. Then mostly sunny and upper 50s on Friday. It's 43 degrees in Boston at 750.
13: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez.
12: And I'm Michelle Martin. In Oklahoma, at least two people are dead and several others hurt after tornadoes ripped through parts of the state last night. Oklahoma is part of Tornado Alley. But as the earth warms, intense storms that produce tornadoes could become more common outside of that area. And the people who are most vulnerable to these storms are often not getting warnings in time to seek shelter. NPR's Julie Deppenbrock has this
28: report. A tornado killed 26 people near Rolling Fork, Mississippi last month.
25: Rebuilding, it's going to be a a long process. The local lumber store that supplied all of the materials to build, they got wiped out. Yeah, all of the stores where we would normally get stuff at, they're gone. So everything, gas stations, gone.
28: That was area resident Larry Bradford speaking to NPR's Debbie Elliott. As global temperatures rise, some climate models suggest that the weather patterns that cause tornadoes could become more common year-round. Victor Gensini, a meteorology professor at Northern Illinois University, says the probability of disasters like Rolling Fork is increasing, not just due to climate change, but also shoddy construction and urban sprawl.
19: A disaster itself is really a function of kind of two things. Number one is the physical risk of the hazard, in this case, a particular tornado, and also the human vulnerability component, sort of exposure, how humans build along the landscape, how we cluster, how strong our structures are.
28: Concepts like tornado alley and tornado season, Gensini says, no longer capture how these storms behave.
19: In reality, tornadoes don't really care what state it is. There is a substantial climatological risk of tornadoes in most places east of the Rockies in the United States.
28: Gensini says forecasts for severe weather have gotten really good and they keep getting better.
19: 20 years ago, we wouldn't even dream about trying to make a next day tornado forecast.
28: Those advanced forecasts are now possible, but how much do they matter if they aren't reaching people in the path of a tornado? National Weather Service alerts are only helpful if you have cell service. Kim Cloco-McLean is a senior scientist at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. She says people find out about severe weather events through a patchwork of local and national systems.
4: And what we see is a lot of rural places receiving the poorest overall service, many in places that intersect with other social vulnerability factors like income and race.
28: 11 minutes before the twister touched down in Rolling Fork, the National Weather Service warned that a supercell was headed for the area. And meteorologists on TV interrupted March Madness to get the word out.
1: If you have loved
15: ones
17: in this area uh, possibly not checking on the weather, go ahead and give them a call.
28: There is a
6: tornado on the ground headed for Rolling Fork. This is a situation where you really
8: need to take precautions right this moment.
28: Cloco-McLean says that there's a lot of pressure not to break into primetime programming.
4: Some station management has given meteorologists feedback in the past because the evening programs, like what were going on during this tornado, can be some of their most-watched programs.
28: She recommends that people get a NOAA weather radio. The radios are battery-operated, they automatically turn on if there's a warning, they're also pretty cheap but they're only in three to 4% of American households. The National Weather Service has been trying for decades to get more people to use them. And some counties are now offering them for free. Julie Dappenbrock, NPR News. When he was a
12: candidate for Virginia governor, Republican Glenn Youngkin got a lot of attention for his promise to rid schools of critical race theory, or CRT. Now CRT has never been part of the state curriculum and critics accused him of dog whistle racism. But he won that race back in 2021, and now Governor Youngkin has pressed on with plans for big changes in the state's education system. As Ben Pavier with Member Station VPM tells us in this next report, that includes a rewrite of history standards that the state could adopt as soon as today.
21: The scene in the school auditorium in Farmville, Virginia, last month has all the trappings of American-style civics in action. There are rows of folding chairs in a school auditorium, a simple podium, and a timer that gives speakers three minutes. Good
0: evening, ladies and gentlemen.
21: A state education staffer and Grace Creasy with the Board of Education are sitting alone on a stage. They're here to gather feedback on new proposed standards for teaching history. Creasy greets the crowd.
29: We are constantly thinking about what
22: you all are telling us. And we appreciate it so
21: much. The proposed standards embrace a vision of the U.S. as a flawed but exceptional country. There's more focus on the Founding Fathers, patriotism, and Ronald Reagan. But speakers like LaTanya Francis, who is black, says it tells an incomplete story.
22: The Declaration of Independence that you talk about on page four of the standards was originally published July 4, 1776. Those words did not apply to me or to people who look like me.
8: By law,
21: the standards have to be updated every seven years. The process started under former Governor Ralph Northam. The Democrat staff sought to make history lessons more inclusive, soliciting feedback from parents, historians, and cultural groups. But some people in Farmville, like Crystal Gorman, say those standards would have focused students too much on systemic racism and conflict.
20: They would be taught to hate our country the best that this world can ever imagine, warts and all.
21: Last fall, the Youngkin administration hired a consultant to rewrite the original standards with input from conservative voices like Hillsdale College. Critics argued the resulting document was riddled with mistakes and bad framing, like referring to Native Americans as the first immigrants to the US. The Board of Education decided to hit pause and ordered state officials back to the drawing board for a third draft. Youngkin defended the latest version at a CNN town hall
5: last month. We in fact enhanced the discussion of slavery and made sure that everyone understood for the first time in Virginia history standards that the cause of the Civil War was slavery.
21: The newest draft adds content on reconstruction, the KKK and Japanese internment camps, but critics say it ignores the contributions of organized labor and historian Cassandra Newby-Alexander, who gave input on the first draft, argues the latest version treats slavery and racism as anomalies.
10: While the document talks about is going to look at, you know, our racial history. It really does it in a very minor way. It makes it almost as an aside that was quickly resolved.
21: Newbie Alexander says history isn't just a bunch of facts. She argues it needs to connect the dots into a fuller, sometimes unflattering picture. If the Board of Education approves Virginia's new history standards today, they'll likely be in place for seven years. For NPR News, I'm Ben Pavier in Richmond.
12: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Amy Martinez.
0: The latest edition of WBUR Today. Just hit your email inbox. It has the latest update on all the problems with the T and the new general manager's plan to fix them. Plus how school interpreters in Brockton are helping parents who speak languages other than English. Sign up to get WBUR Today every day at WBUR.org newsletters. Sunny in mid-60s today. A few clouds flo- float in tonight, and it'll be in the low 40s. Then we'll end the week with a mostly sunny Friday. It'll be In the upper 50s right now it's 43 degrees in boston and we're coming up on eight o'clock
22: support for npr comes from this station and from peacock with the new original series mrs davis about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her from tara hernandez and damon lindelof streaming now on peacock and from cunard sailing to over 250 destinations with queen mary ii queen victoria Queen Elizabeth and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment, cunard.com. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston,
7: 92.7 WBUR-Tisbury and 89one WBUH WBUR-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR Boston's
0: NPR news station. A stampede at a Ramadan charity event in Yemen has killed at least 78 people and injured more than 70 others. It's Thursday, April 20th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a new UNICEF report finds that 67 million children worldwide missed vaccinations during the pandemic. Also, House Republicans say they won't raise the nation's debt limit without major spending cuts. Here's President Biden's response.
29: Take default off the
9: table, and let's have a real serious, detailed conversation about how to grow the economy, lower costs and reduce the deficit.
0: Plus, nearly half of students in Brockton speak a language other than English at home. Now there's a new center to help their parents.
8: The better we can help support parents and the better they are doing, the more equipped they are to help their child.
0: Sunny in the 60s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in
2: Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The U.S. Supreme Court has delayed a decision on the availability of the abortion drug Mifepristone until as late as Friday night. NPR's Marie Andrusovich has more.
15: While the justices decide next steps on possible restrictions for the drug, some lawmakers continue to question whether the court should be involved at all. Meanwhile, GenBioPro, a company that makes a generic version of mifepristone, has sued the FDA, saying the agency can't suspend sales of the drug, quote, regardless of attempts
2: to interfere. NPR's Marie Andrusovich reporting. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is simplifying its COVID vaccine recommendations. Now, most people are considered up to date with one shot of the most current vaccine. NPR's Ping Huang explains. It doesn't matter how many COVID
27: shots you've had in the past. What's important now, according to CDC, is whether you've gotten one shot of the updated vaccine that targets Omicron. That current formulation was released last August. The CDC's new recommendations align with the FDA, which streamlined the COVID vaccine schedule this week. Four out of five U.S. adults have not gotten the Omicron shot, so they're not considered up to date by this new definition. Authorities say that people who didn't get the shot in the past eight months should get one now or in the fall, when vaccine makers are expected to release a new batch of COVID vaccines that better match the strains circulating then. The CDC has also okayed a second shot of the Omicron vaccine for older adults and the immunocompromised who may be at higher risk of severe COVID.
2: Ping Huang, NPR News. Multiple tornadoes plowed through Oklahoma yesterday, killing two people. There's severe damage reporting. The National Weather Service warns more bad weather is coming to the Central Plains today. Hailstones three inches wide or larger could fall. Three people have been arrested and charged in connection with last Saturday's mass shooting in Dadeville, Alabama. From member station WBHM, Richard Banks reports officials have not yet disclosed a
9: motive for the shooting. A spokesperson for the Alabama Law Enforcement Agency says 17-year-old Tyreek McCullough and his brother 16-year-old Travis McCullough were arrested Tuesday night. Also, 20-year-old Wilson Lamar Hill Jr. was arrested Wednesday afternoon. All three have been charged with reckless murder and the shooting deaths of four people at a birthday party Saturday night. At least 32 other people were injured. However, District Attorney Mike Segris says it's not just those with physical injuries he's concerned about.
6: There were so many kids in
9: this venue, and what they saw, um, it's their victims in this. Their families are victims of this. Authorities are saying they expect more arrests to come soon. For NPR News, I'm Richard Banks in Birmingham.
0: This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. A group of predominantly black Boston Marathon spectators are demanding an investigation into how Newton police treated them during Monday's race. Videos shared widely on social media show officers with bicycles created a barricade between the group and the course. WBUR's LHR Manning has more.
17: The group is being represented by lawyers for civil rights, which sent a letter to Newton police and the mayor calling for an emergency meeting, an investigation and an apology. They note that mostly white spectators were not treated the same way. Attorney Tashina Davis says the group wants more clarity about what happened. And we just want to make sure that there was no racial profiling
23: or discriminatory practices.
17: Newton police have said they were responding to complaints from marathon organizers that the group was walking onto the course. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Germani.
0: Boston City Councilor Frank Baker says he is not running for re-election this fall. In a letter released this morning, Baker says he cannot continue to be 100% dedicated to his job as counselor, but he didn't provide any specific reasons for that. Baker has represented parts of Dorchester, Roxbury, and South Boston since 2011. Your tax refund should be on the way if you got your taxes filed on time. Massachusetts and federal agencies don't anticipate the same delays many taxpayers experienced the last few years of the pandemic. WBUR's Orzidinjor and Wemeka reports.
4: The Internal Revenue Service says it's back on normal footing for the first time since the pandemic. The agency has dealt with a huge backlog of unprocessed returns the last few tax seasons. But it's made some improvements this year, including hiring more staff and using more technology to process returns quicker. IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel says the agency received more than 100 million tax returns through April 7th and has delivered more than 69 million refunds. Of course, those who e-filed and chose to get their refund via direct deposit will get it the quickest over the next few weeks. If you opted for a paper check, well, that will take a little longer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zanin Jor and Wameka.
0: UMass Lowell plans to invest more resources into sustainable energy. It's part of a pilot program from National Grid to put a system on campus that uses geothermal energy instead of fossil fuels to provide heating and cooling. Wari Omani is the executive director of UMass Lowell's Sustainability Institute. He says the benefits of the program will be felt outside of the university.
30: We continue to focus on energy efficiency. To start, we'll be able to then deliver a carbon-free heating and cooling solution to these buildings that will, you know, decarbonize an entire city block in in Lowell. And then the lessons that we learn from it can be applied to, uh, I mean, endless environmental justice communities. Again, not just across the Commonwealth, but across the countries.
0: UMass Lowell is the first site where National Grid is using the system. It's 807.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Audubon.
0: The Bruins lost to the Florida Panthers 6-3 to last night at the Garden. That ties their playoff series up at one win each. Game three will be tomorrow night. The Red Sox lost to the Minnesota Twins last night 10-4 to at Fenway. The teams will wrap up their series this afternoon. Sunny today with a high in the 60s, partly cloudy overnight. It'll be in the 40s, mostly sunny tomorrow in the upper 50s. Cloudy but dry on Saturday. It's 43 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your Thursday morning with WBUR.
11: WBUR supporters include EBSCO, committed to providing researchers with reliable, relevant online research databases, including Academic Search Ultimate and Business Source Ultimate. More at
12: EBSCO.com.
13: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California.
12: And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Good morning. You may have been hearing a lot recently about the debt ceiling. Yeah, that's the limit
13: on the total amount of government borrowing. The U.S. hit its limit in January. The Treasury Department is using extraordinary measures to avoid the first ever U.S. debt default, but those are on track to run out this summer. There's growing anxiety on Capitol Hill with a looming deadline and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden have been at an impasse
12: on the issue for several months. Yesterday, McCarthy laid out the House Republicans' legislative demands to stop a default from happening. NPR congressional reporter Barbara Sprunt is with us now to tell us more about it. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning. All right, so let's start with the
18: bill itself. What's in it? The bill does what McCarthy has long signaled he wants to see happen, increasing the debt limit done in tandem with federal spending cuts. The bill would increase the country's borrowing limit by $1.5 trillion or through March of next year, whichever comes first. It would roll back federal spending levels to those from two years ago, limit the growth of spending going forward to 1% annually, and it would try to unwind some of Democrats' signature legislative accomplishments repealing parts of the Inflation Reduction Act, which funded energy and climate change programs, and prevent the administration from enacting its student loan forgiveness plan, which, I should note, is still tied up in the courts. And another thing that's getting a lot of attention about this bill are work requirements for adults without dependents who are enrolled in federal assistance programs.
6: By restoring these common sense measures, we can help more Americans earn a paycheck, learn new skills reduce childhood poverty,
18: and rebuild the workforce. The bill would also target the $80 billion aimed at improving the Internal Revenue Service, which Democrats approved last year as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, and that's aimed at easing up the agency's backlog. And it's worth noting that the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office has estimated that that $80 billion allocated over 10 years for the IRS would increase revenues, and that repealing the measure would actually contribute to the deficit. Now, Barbara, you know, Democrats have been calling on McCarthy to
12: release the details of this proposal that he's been promising for some time now.
18: What are they saying now that he's finally done it? Democrats say a lot of these ideas, particularly the work requirement provision we just discussed, are non-starters. Yesterday, Biden cast McCarthy's plan as something that benefits Wall Street and the wealthy. He said the threat of defaulting on the nation's debt would destroy the economy.
9: Instead... I'm making threats of default if I don't go along with what they want, which would be catastrophic to the country. If we don't do it, they say they're going to let default take place. Take default off the table. And let's have a real serious, detailed conversation about how to grow the economy, lower costs, and reduce the deficit.
12: Barbara, before we let you go, it doesn't sound like the president is eager to engage with McCarthy on this. So can you just tell us what's the thinking from the speaker's side? It doesn't seem like this bill is going to go very far in the Democratic-controlled Senate. So, so what's the logic of this here?
18: That's exactly right. The first hurdle for McCarthy is making sure he has the votes in his own conference. He has a very narrow majority in the House. He can only afford to lose a few Republican members and still pass this thing without any Democratic support. Yesterday, as he was leaving the floor after the speech, he told our colleague Deirdre Walsh he feels confident he does have the votes he needs. But as you said, yes, this would be dead on arrival in the Senate. But the thinking is that if Republicans can pass this in the House, it could put some political pressure on Biden to come back to the negotiating table. That's NPR congressional reporter Barbara Sprunt. Barbara, thank you. Thank you.
13: Three shootings happened within the past week because of what appear to be simple mistakes. In upstate New York, a 20-year-old woman was shot and killed after the car she was in pulled into the wrong driveway. In Missouri, a 16-year-old boy was shot when he rang the wrong doorbell. And in Texas, two high school cheerleaders were shot after one of them accidentally got into the wrong car. So all this made us wonder, in a country where there are more guns than people, how often do these types of shootings happen? For more on this, I'm joined by Allison Anderman. She's senior counsel and director of local policy at Giffords Law Center to prevent gun violence. Uh, Allison, is there any data at all that tells us how often people are shot for simple mistakes like the ones I just mentioned?
31: there is no national repository for this sort of information but we do know from media reports and survey data as well as statements from law enforcement that these types of rage induced shootings are increasing they're still rare like mass shootings between strangers but they are on the rise as well
13: and see, that surprises me because I mean, we catalog absolutely everything. We're a statistics-driven culture, so I'm surprised that this information doesn't exist. Why? Why not?
31: Well, these um, incidents involving guns and shootings uh, are captured at the local level by local law enforcement and um, in jurisdictions around the country. And there's just uh, there's no um, uniform system for cataloging this this data, but also no place to put it.
13: Does anybody think that there should be a place to put it or at least some kind of standard way to collect this kind of information?
31: I think it's a a very big challenge um, Mm. in terms of getting everyone at the local level in the country on the same page. The CDC does collect data on firearm homicides and publishes that information um, two years after the calendar year.
13: So let's talk about the uh, policies or laws that may be affecting the likelihood of these types of shootings, the castle doctrine and, and stand your ground laws, that, that, that kind of stuff comes to mind.
31: Yes. So the so-called stand-your-ground laws are dramatic expansions of centuries worth of self-defense principles. So it's always been the law, I mean, going back hundreds of years to the English common law, that a person has a right to defend themselves with lethal force in their home without having to retreat from their home. Um, But what stand-your-ground laws have done is take this into the public sphere and tell anyone and everyone that if they feel the slightest provocation they can use lethal force without retreating even if they can do so safely without harm to anyone
13: does race play a role in standard ground cases according to the data
31: yes unfortunately stand your ground laws promote racist violence um, there have been studies showing that when a white person kills a black person, it is 281% more likely Mm. that the killing will be found justified than when a white person kills another white person.
13: Is there anything at all that you see in research that may explain why people are feeling provoked or maybe even justified to shoot?
31: Well, I think... It is the confluence of a lot of factors. Over the last few years, we've had increased gun buying as a result of the pandemic and protests for racial justice. So we have more people than ever carrying guns. We have a steady weakening of gun laws in a majority of states. In this country, as I mentioned, the erosion of self-defense laws, um, and also, the gun industry selling a narrative of fear and this notion that everyone must be armed everywhere and at all times to defend themselves. And the result is people using guns offensively, not defensively, and at a hair's provocation.
13: And I'm thinking of the phrase, shoot first, ask questions later. That phrase has been around in America for as long as anyone can remember. Allison Anderman of the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. Allison, thanks.
31: Thank you.
12: AN ACT OF CHARITY HAS TURNED INTO A TRAGEDY IN ONE OF THE WORLD'S POOREST NATIONS. ABOUT 80 PEOPLE DIED AND MANY MORE WERE INJURED IN A stampede THAT DEVELOPED AS PEOPLE GATHERED IN THE CAPITAL TO COLLECT DONATIONS ON ONE OF THE FINAL DAYS OF RAMADAN. NPR'S AYA BATRAWI HAS THIS REPORT.
27: EVENING PRAYERS HAD JUST FINISHED AND A CROWD WAS GATHERED AT A SCHOOL IN YEMEN'S CAPITAL Sanaa, WHERE CASH HANDOUTS WORTH AROUND $9 WERE BEING DISTRIBUTED. BUT IT ALL WENT HORRIBLY WRONG as the crowd pushed forward down a narrow street leading toward the school, unaware that people in the front were being crushed and suffocated. The tragedy occurred just days before Muslims celebrate the end of Ramadan with charity to the poor. Video of the stampede showed men struggling to break free from the crowd, their arms stretched out as they pleaded for rescue. A man standing on a ledge is heard yelling to the crowd, move back, move back. But it was already too late. Health officials say in addition to the dozens dead, many more were injured in the stampede. Yemeni news channel Al-Masira carried images of survivors in hospitals. Some had broken bones or deep gashes on their legs. Others were breathing with the support of oxygen masks. Houthi officials who are in charge of the capital, Sanaa, say the event should have never happened like this. Houthi officials told local TV, Prominent businessmen had organized the charitable distribution without coordinating first with local authorities. The Houthi Run and Masira TV channel says a criminal investigation is underway. The channel carried images of the aftermath. Stairs leading up to the school are strewn with the blood-stained clothes and rubber flip-flops of victims. This is one of the world's poorest countries. Its economy has been devastated by years of war. The World Food Programme estimates that nearly 24 million people in Yemen are in need of assistance. 17 million lack access to affordable vegetables, fruit and other basic food items. There are signs that Yemen's war is now winding down, but Wednesday night's Stampede is a reminder of just how dire the humanitarian crisis remains. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Dubai.
12: On a very different subject, before it was a $150 billion streaming service, Netflix mailed movies to its subscribers. In the late 1990s, two tech entrepreneurs had a hunch DVDs would be the next big thing. Now, some 25 years and 5.2 billion discs later, it's shutting down that service. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, a look at the history of Netflix. You can listen on your phone or radio.
0: This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up in just a few minutes on Morning Edition, scientists are linking melting sea ice in the Arctic to the weather causing wildfires in the western U.S. And in 20 minutes, the wet winter in California has rejuvenated what was once the largest freshwater lake west of the Mississippi, leaving whole communities underwater. It's 820.
13: Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen
11: to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday.
0: Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall School in Waltham, Mass. For nearly 200 years, day and boarding students have achieved their best at CHCH. And next year, they will be opening doors and welcoming students to the new Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall Middle School. Learn more at their open house on April 23rd. CHCH.org slash open house.
0: Clear skies and a high of 65 today. Right now it's 43 degrees in Boston at 821.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Peacock, with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streaming now on Peacock. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com slash public. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
12: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin.
13: And I'm A. martinez This is a story about two places, thousands of miles apart, with an unexpected connection. One is the western U.S., where wildfires have ravaged communities in recent years. The other is the Arctic Ocean, where vast areas of sea ice are disappearing. These extremes of fire and ice have a surprising link, one that scientists say is getting stronger as the climate changes. Lauren
29: Sommer from NPR's Climate Desk has the story. It's early July, 30 miles above the Arctic Circle, and in a small coastal village of Kotzebue, Alaska, kids are swimming. They launch themselves off a seawall into the ocean. It's getting late, but it doesn't matter too much. The sun stays up for 24 hours this time of year. Boats are still speeding by on the open water. But just a few decades ago, this would not be swim season because huge pieces of ice would still be floating by. Most of the year, the ocean around Kotzebue is frozen for as far as you can see. For the Alaska Native people here, ice is a way of life.
9: For the Inupiat people that's living along the coastal areas, we're here for a reason. And that particular reason is the resources out in, in the waters.
29: Cyrus Harris grew up around Kotzebue. Like many people here, he relies on hunting and fishing, as has been done for generations.
9: I'd like to say 70% of my diet is from the lands and waters.
29: Harris runs the Elders Traditional Food Program, where hunters donate food to supply the long-term care facility Uh, in town. On this side, I got... He opens a big big walk-in freezer uh, with caribou, fish, and seal.
9: We're going to be making... Fresh seal oil this winter with the
29: seals. Bearded, Bearded seals are an important so traditional food, gotta, gotta, and they're only nearby for a short time, when the sea ice starts breaking up in the spring. But that hunting season has been getting even shorter, he says, because the Arctic is changing undeniably. It's warming twice as fast as the rest of the planet.
9: Our colder temperatures throughout the winter are no longer colder temperatures throughout the winter. Earlier spring thaws, it's obvious, late fall freeze up that's obvious
29: to measure that harris and other village elders teamed up with scientists from columbia university and the university of alaska fairbanks they combined traditional indigenous knowledge with scientific data and found since 2003 the sea ice breaks up three weeks earlier on average
9: if these changes continue to go on as they are it's going to be a big challenge for the many of us Uh, it's going to be a big challenge for the younger generation
29: and the changes aren't just affecting people here The thing
2: about the Arctic is that
29: it only works when it's cold. Alex Whiting is environmental director for the native village of Kotzebue.
10: So that means when it's not cold, a lot of things start to become disrupted.
29: We're walking on the shoreline at the edge of town. There aren't any roads beyond here. Kotzebue can only be reached by boat, plane and snowmobile when there's ice. Whiting says what happens in the Arctic matters because it influences the rest of the planet.
10: The Arctic is a major thermoregulator for the planet, right? It's our air conditioner for the planet. It drives weather systems.
29: All that cold at the top of the planet shapes the weather, including weather that's thousands of miles away. Tonight, wildfires are leaving a trail of destruction amid record-breaking heat in the West. The California heat wave is... Scientists are finding that Arctic ice seems to be shaping weather that fuels major disasters, like wildfires.
14: The change in the Arctic could affect anywhere people live.
29: Heilong Wang is an earth scientist at the Department of Energy's Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. He says this is how it works. When the Arctic Ocean is covered in ice, it's super bright white, so it's really good at reflecting sunlight. It acts like a shield. But when there's less sea ice...
14: The ocean can uh, absorb and store more heat from the sunlight.
29: That heats up the water, which warms the air above it. The warm air forms a weather system, one that's strong enough to push something you hear about a lot in weather reports, the jet stream. The jet stream is what steers weather across the lower 48.
14: The shift of this jet stream can have a big impact on uh, weather events.
29: Like bringing hot, dry air to the western U.S. Wong's research shows this connection, from less sea ice to more arid heat in the west, is likely to become more common as the climate gets hotter. And it would happen in the fall, a time when hot, dry air is especially dangerous. Mark Macias has seen that firsthand in a wildfire three years ago.
25: Fire of this magnitude, how fast it moves, you can't get in front of it.
29: Macias is a fire captain with the St. Helena Fire Department in Northern California. We're in a rural part of Napa County with rolling hills and oak woodlands. In late September of 2020, he and his crew were the first ones here after getting a call about a wildfire. They had already been on high alert because of the weather.
25: It was windy, there was no humidity.
29: The wildfire was moving fast. The priority became just getting
25: people out. It's a bright orange everywhere. You're constantly getting burned with embers. Yeah, it's something.
29: The glass fire, as it was called, exploded, jumping hundreds of acres overnight. The dry air sapped the moisture from vegetation, priming it to burn. Messias spent the next 60 hours straight evacuating people. Eventually, more than 1,500 homes and buildings were destroyed. This isn't the only fire like this Macias has seen. He and his crew have been called to fight them around California.
25: It just seems like there's more of them, more and more of them.
29: It's taken a big toll, not just on the local communities, but on Messias and the firefighters he works with. He gets choked up talking about it.
25: You try to do a lot and it feels like you can't win. I know that was a huge thing that I've talked to with um, other guys. It's just like when you just feel like you can't win and you're trying, you know. Those are the tough ones.
29: There are a lot of reasons wildfires explode into something unstoppable. The land may be overgrown with vegetation or the terrain too steep. But hot, dry weather, fire weather as it's known, has been the deciding factor in the most destructive wildfires in recent years. Forecasting this weather and knowing when it could be more common would be a big help for Western states. And that may be a matter of understanding its faraway connection to the Arctic Ocean. And it's blanket of white ice that's shrinking more and more. Lauren Sommer, NPR News.
13: This is NPR
0: News. Coming up in five minutes on WBOR's Morning Edition, a new report from UNICEF finds millions of children worldwide missed vaccinations during the pandemic and diseases like polio are starting to reemerge as a result. It's a 29
11: we're funded by you, our listeners, and by summer term at Boston University. Advance your studies with more than 700 courses in over 70 subjects, ranging from business, math, and sciences to humanities, languages, communication, and more. For summer term dates and to register, visit bu.edu slash summer.
6: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Cleanup and damage assessments are getting underway in areas of central Oklahoma, where tornadoes did widespread damage last night. At least two deaths are reported in the town of Cole, south of Oklahoma City. Thousands of homes and businesses lost power when the storms knocked down trees and power lines. Production of the film Rust is expected to resume today, two years after the movie's cinematographer was fatally shot on set. Actor and producer Alec Baldwin has been charged in her death. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco says the film's production is shifting from New Mexico to Montana
16: principal photography of the western movie Rust is starting back up in a new location, Yellowstone Film Ranch in Montana, with Alec Baldwin still in the lead role. In 2021, the movie's original cinematographer, Helena Hutchins, was shot and killed when the gun Baldwin was holding went off during a rehearsal on a ranch outside Santa Fe, New Mexico. Baldwin, one of the film's producers, maintains he was not responsible for what turned out to be a loaded gun. He's been charged with two counts of involuntary man. So is the production's armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. Hutchins' widower, Matthew, is now an executive producer of Rust. The production will use on-set safety supervisors and union crew members and will bar working weapons or any form
6: of ammunition. This is NPR News.
0: From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. Federal regulators are ordering the MBTA to increase training and take other safety measures. That follows a series of close calls on the tracks. At least five employees were almost struck by trains in the past five weeks. T-officials blame miscommunication between dispatchers and construction crews working on the tracks. Resident physicians and fellows at Mass General Brigham hope to schedule a union election in the coming weeks. WBOR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports they're fighting for better pay and better working conditions.
29: Residents and fellows say they need higher wages to afford rent in Boston and more flexible schedules that allow breaks from work weeks that can last 60 to 80 hours.
25: 12-hour days are not uncommon at all.
29: Dr. Max Jordan Ngumini is a second-year resident. He says trainees deserve a seat at the table with management.
25: Our goal is basically to raise the floor. There needs to be a sort of minimum standard.
29: Leaders at Mass General Brigham say they're raising wages to make their trainees the highest paid in the country. They oppose the union effort and warn it will lead to conflict and could hamper patient care. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Priyanka Deale-McCluskey.
0: There's a debate over whether to allow a drag show during a pride festival in a small central mass town. Members of the select board in North Brookfield rescinded the permits for the drag show after originally giving the okay. Some of the board members claimed the show would be, quote, "...adult entertainment, despite promises from organizers that it'll be appropriate for all ages." The ACLU is asking the board to reconsider. It's 833.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, helping teachers to become agents of learning in the community through master's programs and licensures.
0: Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. The playoff series between the Bruins and Panthers is now tied up. Boston lost to Florida 6-3 to last night, so the series is tied at one game each. Game three will be tomorrow night. The Red Sox fell to the Minnesota Twins 10-4 to last night at Fenway. The teams will play again this afternoon. Sunny with temperatures rising to the mid-60s today. Tonight, those fall to the low 40s and it gets a bit cloudy. Tomorrow, mostly sunny Friday with highs in the upper 50s. Right now, it's 44 degrees in Boston at 8. 34, this is WBUR.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Zoom. Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect, Zoom One. And from BritBox, with Sister Boniface Mysteries. Brilliant crime-solving nun Sister Boniface returns to solve curious cases in this Father Brown spin-off. Available to stream at britbox.com/npr
13: It's morning edition from NPR News. Ami Martinez in Culver City, California.
12: And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Good morning. The COVID-19 pandemic disrupted routine health care services for millions of us. A new report by UNICEF finds those disruptions caused the biggest drop in
13: childhood vaccinations in decades. And countries across the world are seeing the consequences of those missed vaccines.
12: Here to tell us more about those findings is NPR's health correspondent, Ritu Chatterjee. Ritu, good morning. Good morning, Michelle. So tell us more about the report report and what it found, how many kids missed their vaccines. So you know, this is a report that UNICEF puts out
26: every year, and this latest one finds that between 2019 and 2021, a total of 67 million children did not receive all or some of their routine vaccines like measles, polio, hepatitis B, diphtheria, etc. And 48 million kids got zero doses. And these kids, you know, are already three years old or nearing that age by when they have received all their shots. And I spoke with uh, Lily Caprani, the chief of global advocacy at UNICEF, and here's what she told me about what these numbers say. We've seen the largest sustained decline in the number of children reached with their basic childhood immunizations more than a generation's worth of progress, and the consequences of that will be measured
12: in children's lives. And when she says a generation's worth of progress, what does she mean?
26: So, you know, the world had made so much progress in recent decades in controlling these dangerous childhood diseases with vaccines, and in just a matter of three
12: years, so much of that work has just been undone. This is so important, Ritu. Does this mean that these diseases that the vaccines protected kids against are coming back?
26: Yeah, there's been a rise in cases of tetanus and diarrheal diseases, for example, and countries are seeing large and disruptive outbreaks of one of the most contagious diseases, measles. Just last year, 33 countries saw major measles outbreaks, including India, Somalia, Nigeria, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, and polio cases are rising too. Brian Keeley is the editor-in-chief of this report, and he told me that the number of children paralyzed by polio have jumped eightfold during this time. Here's Keeley. It really does show that we can't be complacent with something like polio. For my generation, we thought this was over. You know, we thought it was dealt with. It isn't. If we don't keep up these efforts to really vaccinate every child, this will come back. And so will, you know, all these other diseases that kids are vaccinated for.
12: So before we let you go, what are countries doing to make up for the lost time and to catch up on these truly important childhood vaccines?
26: hmm So the good news here is that many countries have already been working really hard to catch up on these missed shots. And many have succeeded in getting to kids that had missed these uh, vaccines. For example, the Philippines has been doing a lot of community outreach and using some innovative approaches like doing vaccination campaigns in commercial places like malls to vaccinate kids. Uh, so, you know, to get to people where they are. And they've caught up quite a bit, according to a UNICEF official based in Manila. And India, which has nearly 3 million kids with zero vaccine doses has really turned things around with very targeted campaigns in the most affected communities. But, you know, the poorer countries and those that are conflict-ridden have really a long way to go to reach every child. That is NPR's Ritu Chatterjee. Ritu, thank you. My pleasure.
13: In California's Central Valley, a once vibrant lake is back, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Tulare Lake used to be the largest freshwater lake west of the Mississippi. It was drained more than 100 years ago and turned into farmland. So, Hawk with member station KVPR in Fresno explains how the lake returned and the consequences that came with
21: that.
7: Kiara Rendon looks out on her family's 10 acre plot of land in the small rural community of Allensworth, the first black settlement in California. All of that was full of water and it was coming inside the property. The day the water started gushing onto the land, Rendon got a frantic call from her
4: sister. She's five months pregnant and she was out here building a ditch because she wanted to prevent it to going into her property.
7: CAL FIRE, a state agency that responds to natural disasters, sent a team to dig a ditch to divert the water. Rendon never thought flooding would be an issue, but relentless storms since late December dropped some of the largest Sierra Nevada snowpack in state-recorded history. All that snow is going to melt. And in California's Central Valley, it naturally flows into the footprint of Tulare Lake. Rendon's home is right in the path of that rising water. So if
4: the water was to come in, you guys are like... We're the first ones to get affected by the water and then everybody else. You
30: know, we always say that man reclaimed the desert. No, we didn't reclaim the desert. We claimed the desert. Nature now is reclaiming the land.
7: That's Fresno writer, Mark Arax. For decades, he's given voice to the history and struggles that shaped the San Joaquin Valley's rich agricultural landscape. Native American tribes relied on Tulare Lake.
30: It sustained these Yokut, Tachi tribes. They fished along the shores. They lived along the shores.
7: Then, settlers came and developed the land for farming. By the early 1900s, Tulare Lake went dry. Its water harnessed in an intricate system of canals, dams, and ditches. Arak says that makes the Tulare Lake Basin one of the most engineered landscapes in the world.
30: The strange thing is, is you're calling it a flood. I mean, it's the bottom of a lake, right? But we've gotten so used to being emptied that this becomes now a, a fight of man versus nature.
7: Lucrative crops like pistachios are now planted on thousands of acres of the lake bed and flooding these crops will rack up huge losses. ARAC says all of this raises the stakes for farmers.
30: So to see the lake come back is quite a drama. It is one of the the great dramas of California.
7: Emergency crews and farmers are doing their best to prepare for the rising water. There are reports of levees being cut to protect farmland. And CAL FIRE, the first to help Rendon's family, has been working with local officials to divert the water. A video shows helicopters dropping sandbags to try to shore up levees and canals.
8: We're doing another evac for levee failure.
7: Sean Norman heads an incident command team with CAL FIRE.
8: So it's tricky because we have to really look at if we stop this water from moving here, where is it going next?
7: Researchers are looking at history for what to expect next. It's a flashback to 1983. That year, the lake refilled and flooded thousands of acres of farmland for at least two years. Right now, the snowpack level and the amount of water already in state reservoirs is nearly the same as it was 40 years ago. Jeffrey Mount is with the Water Policy Center at the Public Policy Institute of California. He says the state still doesn't have the infrastructure to handle the snowmelt. There's
9: not going to be a lot of places to put water in the near term.
7: The Southern Sierra received three times the average snowfall this year. The water is coming, say experts. But for people like Kiara Rendon in Allensworth, this once-in-a-generation flood is a slow-moving disaster. For NPR News, I'm Sarith Hawk in Fresno.
13: This is NPR News.
0: Coming up at 845 on Warning Edition, we visit a new center in Brockton that's trying to improve education for bilingual students by engaging their parents. In your forecast, mid-60s today under sunny skies, low 40s tonight, and it grows a bit overcast. Then on Friday, mostly sunny and upper 50s. Right now it's 44 degrees in Boston at 843.
22: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Independent Film Festival Boston, celebrating 20 years, with screenings April 26th through May 3rd. Information at iffboston.org.
0: Thousands of workers at Boston-based General Electric will soon be paid more thanks to a two-year union contract extension. The deal guarantees a 12 percent pay increase for 3,000 people who work for the company. The contract also includes labor protections for GE's aerospace and energy divisions. North Andover-based 6K Energy is planning a $200 million expansion in western Tennessee. The energy firm says it'll build a battery manufacturing plant that'll bring more than 200 jobs to the area. It's 843.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Muzzin Audio, offering high-fidelity FM Bluetooth audio speakers in an array of nostalgic designs and colors, available at muzzinaudio.com. And MathWorks. Creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and
0: science. MathWorks.com. This is WBOR's morning edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Brockton Public Schools is one of a handful of districts in Massachusetts where about half of the student body speak a language other than English to their parents at home. WBOR's Carrie Young recently stopped by the district's newest facility where educators are using translation services as a way to forge deeper connections with those parents. <laughs>
1: When you walk into the multilingual Parent Communication Center, the first thing you notice is the hum of ringing phones and constant conversation in several different languages. In one corner, Adele Gomes asks a parent who just walked in what her name and email address is in Cape Verdean Creole. On the opposite side of the room is Jean Cherry. He speaks Haitian Creole to a mom who's filling out a job form.
8: Okay.
1: and on the far side, Javier Castro Soto speaks Spanish to a parent on the phone that will be moving soon and needs financial assistance in the past these bilingual community relations facilitators hopped from school to school throughout the city but this year most of them are seated together in one office district leaders hope the new location which is near a major city bus line will make it easier for parents to reach an interpreter without much of a weight connie jenay branco a staff member here says the added efficiency helps with her demanding schedule
16: every school uses me for you know with the nurse with the parent conferences, the events at night to, to make sure that the bilingual parents,
1: they're included. Janae Branco speaks Portuguese and Cape Verdean Creole. She's worked for Brockton Schools for 30 years. When she started, there were three people in the department. Today, the staff has grown to more than a dozen people who speak Spanish, Portuguese, French, Haitian Creole, Cape Verdean Creole, Thai, Hmong, Mandarin, and Laotian. Officials say the staff keeps growing because the population is changing. About 46 percent of Brockton students speak a language other than English with their parents and family at home, a number that's nearly doubled in the last 20 years. The Brazilians are starting to come a lot mm-hmm. now,
16: and they tell each other, "Oh, call Connie. Connie, Connie helped me. <laughs> you know, so you know, it doesn't matter what school, doesn't matter what it is. Please call Connie. You know, she helped me a lot."
1: All 17 bilingual community relations facilitators and parent advocates here are certified in school interpretation to ensure accuracy and clear communication. But having a shared language helps in other ways too, like building trust. Parent Gilda Andrade, who mostly speaks Cape Verdean Creole, says she felt comfortable leaning on the staff when her son was struggling in school. Her facilitator coordinated meetings with teachers and answered questions about school policy.
18: She helped me a great deal because she knew I didn't understand English. She helped me get him into the school he's in now because of that.
1: Brockton school administrators say investments in translation services helps build bridges with different communities in the city and leads to positive outcomes for kids. Michael Thomas is the district superintendent.
8: The better we can help support parents and the better they are doing, the more equipped they are to help their child. And they benefit from better grades, enrolling in higher level classes, uh, going on to a college or career.
1: Brockton's model is also less disruptive to other school staff. In a lot of Massachusetts districts, educators who happen to speak another language are often pulled away from their classroom duties to help facilitate parent communication. That can be problematic, according to Deanna Santiago with Massachusetts Advocates for Children.
16: They are very frequently not trained in even basic ideas
7: that are encapsulated in that code of ethics, um, like confidentiality, the specific terminology that's used in educational settings. So
1: special education team meetings, meetings relating to student discipline. For the last few years, her group has pushed for a state law that would create certification standards for anyone asked to translate at school. The bill is still pending. Brockton Superintendent Michael Thomas says school leaders in other communities have started to reach out, wanting to learn more about the district's center. He says he's happy to share what Brockton has learned because the need for this type of support is only expected to grow. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in the next few minutes today, April 20th, is also known as 420, the day lots of Americans celebrate cannabis. The Marketplace Morning Report marks the holiday by looking at how businesses that sell pot are navigating federal laws that still consider marijuana illegal. It's 849.
22: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Innovation Academy. Now enrolling for limited spaces in grades 6 to 12, boarding and day for fall 2023. neiacademy.org.
20: I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, it's Tech Talk with Boston Globe's Hiawatha Bray. Tech sector layoffs are putting workers with H-1B visas in a frantic immigration crunch. Plus, robotics company Boston Dynamics is back in the news. The NYPD just announced the purchase of its controversial robot, DigiDog. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. The Supreme Court has delayed a decision on the abortion pill Mifepristone until tomorrow. It'll remain accessible until then. House Republicans are at a stalemate with President Joe Biden, who says raising the debt ceiling should come without conditions. And SpaceX is expected to try and launch the largest rocket ever built today after a delay earlier this week. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org.
11: WBUR supporters include Next Generation, a showcase of elite young artists and Boston Ballet School student talent at Citizens Bank Opera House Friday, May 19th, bostonballet.org.
0: Sunny with temperatures in the mid-60s today. Tonight, low 40s and some clouds move in. Mostly sunny and upper 50s on Friday. It's 44 degrees in Boston at 851.
16: Electric vehicle sales are up, but Tesla's profits are down. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Otter.ai. Otter's AI meeting assistant automatically takes live meeting notes, captures slides, generates summaries, and assigns action items. More at Otter.ai. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Benishore in for David Brancaccio. Tesla's first quarter results
32: are in, and it was not all good news. While electric car sales in general rose 74% in the U.S. year over year in January, Tesla's profits in the first quarter were down 24% from a year ago. Part of this comes down to Elon Musk's plan to make Tesla's electric vehicles cheaper. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer joins me now with the details. Hi, Nancy. Good morning. Why is Tesla making less money?
20: Tesla said it made just shy of $3 billion in the first three months of this year. That is below expectations, way down from last year's. Tesla says it had to pay higher prices for raw materials and logistics. It also says its warranty costs were higher. There were some recalls and Tesla cut the price of some of its cars and it is facing more competition. More companies are getting into the electric vehicle business.
32: What's the expectation for how the rest of this year is going to go?
10: Well,
20: Musk says those logistics and commodity costs will fall this year, so that will help the bottom line. But he also told analysts an uncertain economy could make consumers more reluctant to plunk down the money for a new car. He said every time the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, that's equivalent to an increase in the price of a car.
25: Oh,
32: what does Musk have to say about Tesla's production later this year?
20: He expects to hold a kickoff to introduce the new Cybertruck this summer, Musk also announced plans recently for a new Tesla factory in Monterey, Mexico, and the company says it's going to build a new facility in Shanghai to make its megapack energy storage systems. All right. Thanks, Nancy. You're
32: welcome. Today is April 20th or 420, a day when lots of Americans celebrate, or at least give a wink, to cannabis, marijuana, the devil's lettuce. While it is a whole industry worth tens of billions of dollars with its own holiday. Cannabis is illegal at the federal level in the U.S. That is posing problems for entrepreneurs trying to get insurance in the 20 or so states where you
5: can buy it and sell it legally. Marketplace's Henry Epp has more. If you live in a state where it's legal, yes, you can get insurance for your cannabis business. It's just going to be expensive.
16: I believe it was more than ten thousand dollars.
5: Miriam Wood owns The Tea House, a dispensary in White River Junction, Vermont, that opened in late December. She says her insurance company required almost half of the total premium as a down payment.
16: It was difficult. We weren't licensed. We didn't have any revenue coming in.
5: These policies can be so expensive because cannabis laws vary state to state. So companies have to offer specialized policies, says Peg Brown, a deputy commissioner at the Colorado Division of Insurance.
20: Much of the insurance that's available for cannabis is in what we call the surplus lines market.
5: This is a type of insurance often used to cover unusual things like a singer's voice or a dancer's legs or a storefront full of pot and cash. A group of regulators is working to standardize state policies. But Brown says the easiest fix would be for Congress to change federal law. I'm Henry Epp for Marketplace. All right, let's
32: do the numbers. The FTSE in London is down two-tenths of a percent. Dow S&P and NASDAQ futures also down in the six-tenths to one full percent range, uh, with the Dow future down 191 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is at
16: 3.547 percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairytale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. And by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is a password management solution designed to enable employee productivity. Learn how Bitwarden can enable secure password management at bitwarden.com. In 2019, federal health officials launched a major push to end the
32: HIV epidemic in the U.S. Agencies have sent hundreds of millions of dollars to infection hotspots. The idea is to fund new approaches to fighting the virus. But COVID, politics, and stigma could keep the country from meeting those ambitious goals, especially in southern states
3: and counties. Sam Whitehead from KFF Health News reports. The idea is to cut new HIV infections by 90% by 2030. Harold Phillips leads the White House's Office of National AIDS policy. He doesn't think that's realistic.
17: Do
12: I think the whole country's gonna make it there? I don't think so because of some of the challenges.
3: Challenges like how the pandemic disrupted HIV testing, That's made it hard to tell if new infections are declining.
5: It is tough to say right now, are we winning? Are
3: we losing? Are we at the same level? Better data will help the Biden administration decide where to send money. It's asked for $850 million in the federal budget. There have been bright spots. A needle exchange in Florida connects people to HIV treatment using telehealth, which was vital during the pandemic. That project got federal dollars to study the effectiveness of the program. University of Miami's Dr. Hansel Tooks runs the Needle Exchange. He says it's hard to get buy-in in in conservative parts of the state. It's
13: sad to see what's happened in this hyper-partisan, anti-science
3: environment. Elsewhere, in Tennessee, Republican lawmakers recently turned down grants for HIV services. In Texas, Hope Adams works in HIV prevention in Tarrant County, where she's trying to avoid the ire of conservative lawmakers. She says her messaging has to be pretty vanilla. She's hesitant to put PSAs on dating apps like Grindr and Tinder.
18: In some way, we're doing a disservice to our community and that we're not getting the message out to the people who need to hear it.
3: As of February, many states and counties in the South hadn't spent all the money they'd been allocated to cut new HIV infections. In Charlotte, Chelsea Golden says the money her HIV clinic receives can't be spent beyond the boundaries of one rapidly growing county.
20: So as we're seeing people move right outside of the county line because housing is cheaper, we're seeing them be out of the reach of services that are geared just for Mecklenburg County.
3: Even if the nation does end up meeting its goal to cut HIV infections by 90%, the federal funding process for HIV is year to year. Prevention advocates say it's one thing to bring HIV under control. It's another thing to keep investing to hold the epidemic at bay. I'm Sam Whitehead in Atlanta. That
32: story was produced in collaboration with KFF Health News in New York. I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media.
0: Check out the new podcast from WBUR in partnership with the Marshall Project. It's called Violation, and it tells the story of two families and and, an unthinkable crime that's bound them together for decades. Listen to Violation wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny in mid-60s today, low 40s tonight, then mostly sunny in upper 50s tomorrow. Right now it's 44 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe.
7: I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amer. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.